He dreamt last night, I cranced in. A rolling mass of sounds and optical data cobbled together into a near quilt like the fabric scraps of seamstress with an acute allergy to waste. There was a muddy plain being doused by fresh rain, patches of undisturbed grass popping up at irregular intervals where neither tanks red nor shell had disturbed them. As he had barreled headlong across the field, floating occasionally over half-flooded trenches, their top edges lined with barbed wire, the sounds of gunfire, explosions, and the whistling of falling shells assaulted him, though without any accompanying visuals. Cranston was moving, he saw, inexorably and quite rapidly, towards a ball of white, roughly four feet in diameter, that sat in the middle of the plain, its lower arc buried a few inches into the ground. Panic tore through his mind, sharp and irresistible, for a moment before he snapped awake. He hadn't gotten any more sleep after that. Just a long bath to wash away the night sweat. Now, with the nightmare faded into no more than a small and easily ignored pile of sand in his mind, he sits down to breakfast in his sister's suite. She, Vivian, hardly letting him butter his toast before demanding he continue his narrative from the night before. Sit comfortably. Maybe get a snack. Because it's time for Nyon Zezabel. Thank you for joining us for this premiere episode of Neon Jezebel. We'll return to today's thrilling story in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you tired of having to buy a new destination card every time you step inside a teleporter? Do you worry that a flimsy card could send you to the wrong destination, or worse? Well, fear no more, because with SureStamp Teleportation Punch Cards, you can rest safe knowing that you're using the most reliable destination cards on the market. And they're reusable, too. You may not think about how much time goes into producing a high-quality punch card, but the folks at SureStamp make it their business to think about that and nothing else. The durable card stock can be read by a machine up to 50 times before showing any signs of wear. SureStamp punch cards are not perforated, so there's no concern over hanging chads or partial punches. SureStamp uses machines that cut spaces into their cards, assuring maximum card integrity. So next time you need a new destination card for your commute to work or a trip to see the family, be sure to get a SureStamp Teleportation Punch Card. Card with integrity. And now, back to Neon Jezebel.
right, all right. Where was I? Yes, so. We had Lydia in the car, newly liberated from her unfortunate circumstances. We had to return to the Syme retreat to deposit the young woman, no sense bringing her along to a hostage situation. I made her a couple sandwiches, and she gave us directions to a place she referred to as the Old Fairfax Place. It had belonged to a family that had more or less abandoned it before the war. According to her, it had been purchased not long ago by two men. Their motives were obscure, but they said they were Christians, which was good enough for the Barnabys. They further settled any possible animosity by paying a hefty sum to have that milk truck modified. While Lydia drew us a map, I went to the Syme Institute proper. With Mr. Edgewater discarded, I looked just like another well-to-do man of the world, the kind that made up quite a percentage of Dr. Syme's patients already. The good doctor was in town, talking with the police, so I borrowed a young nurse to come keep an eye on Lydia. The two got along famously. I heard them giggling for reasons unknown as Lucian and I left the house. It was only just 1 p.m. when we set out again. In drawing the map, Lydia had included a proliferation of what I first took to be unnecessary details. However, once we were on those rarely driven mountain roads, they proved to be invaluable. Small details regarding the flora made all the difference on two occasions. It was almost 4 p.m. when we arrived at the road that would take us directly to the old Fairfax house. We stopped, well before we could see it, lest the kidnappers see us coming. It had been over 24 hours since Rosamond had been taken. If the kidnappers operated on a doctrine anything like the one we had used with prisoners during the war, they would have set about doing whatever they had planned to do that morning. Of course, we hadn't the slightest idea what that plan might be. Lucian and I stepped off the road and made our way through the forest, far enough in that we would not be readily seen, but close enough that we could follow the road. After another fifteen minutes or so, we came within sight of the house. It was another two-story affair, built in much the same style as the Barnaby house, but with a more modest veranda. It was also in a far better state of repair. The milk truck we had seen taking Rosamond and her client Miss Kane was parked on the far side of the house, and no other vehicles were in sight. There were no lights evident in the windows, and we moved along the edge of the trees until we found a suitable place to watch the house from. Good old Lucian had thought to bring binoculars for the both of us, so we laid down on a welcoming patch of earth, a hundred or so feet from the clearing around the house, and began our watch. We were looking for any signs of movement, hoping to get a head count on the villains. It was, therefore, a mixed blessing when we heard another car making its way up the road to the house. Lucian and I, laying down behind the cover of forest underbrush, couldn't get sight of it until the car was as close to the house as we were, not that seeing it any earlier would have benefited us. We had seen the vehicle only that morning, sitting quietly in the front yard of Jeremiah Barnaby's house. It was no great surprise, of course. We had absconded with Lydia, though with her consent, but not her father's. It was Shem, the nasal-voiced harrier that got out of the car first. Hey, Bible boys! He yelled as soon as his door was open. Come out here! We need talk to you! He was followed by three of the boys we had already met. The one with the axe, the stout one, and the short one. 
The boys milled about the vicinity of the car with hunting shotguns, like a motley parade detail. They were both agitated, which was fair enough after the morning we'd given them, and energized by getting to carry guns around. It was like watching fresh privates doing their first live fire drills in wet socks. Shem kept shouting at the house, never venturing more than a few dozen feet from the car. Eventually, a man came outside. He was large in a distinctly Nordic way, with a thick beard and unkempt hair, very much the image of a stevedore or a crab fisherman. Their conversation was quiet, and I strained to catch any of it. Shem was asking if the errant stevedore had seen Lucian and I, which led into the stevedore asking why we would come here. Shem gave some version of the morning's events, and the stevedore began to nod. The stevedore's voice carried far better than Shem's, partly because he was turned more in our direction, but also his tone was by far more masculine. He said, I know the men you mean. They are coming here to reclaim the neon Jezebel. That was the first time I had heard the name used, and I was unsure I had heard it correctly. Next, the stevedore put a hand on Shem's shoulder, and his voice dropped to a murmur for a few moments, then rose again as he released Shem. Just until we get her out of town. There's a truck coming tomorrow, and then there's nothing they can do. I whispered to Lucian, Rosamond is safe. He nodded. I asked, Move now or wait? Lucian shook his head. Shem was talking again and pointing down the road, they had seen our car. I gave Lucian a look, and he held up a finger. I was ready to get this over with. Then Lucian nodded towards one with the axe. He didn't have an axe anymore, just a well-used shotgun, but his boots seemed to be giving him a bit of trouble. When the young man stopped, Lucian nodded and rose up into a racer's starting position. He unbuttoned his jacket to have better access to his pistols, and I followed suit. We watched the one with the axe kneel down to tend to his boot. He set down his gun and used both hands to pull it off. Now, Lucian said. He and I charged out of the trees, drawing our pistols as we went. No one move! Lucian bellowed, walking sideways in an arc towards the house. I approached the one with the axe. Don't do it, I said to the young man. If I see a hand touch steel, I'll burn you down. "'Where's my daughter?' Shem yelled, seemingly unperturbed by being at the wrong end of a pistol. "'None of your business!' Lucian answered. Shem looked genuinely confused by that statement. "'She's my daughter! She's a grown woman!' Lucian said. "'She can go where she pleases. Speaking of grown women going where they please, you—' And he addressed the stevedore. "'Be a pal and go fetch the two women you kidnapped.' You tried, you failed, it happens. No need for anyone to get shot today. The stevedore was fuming. He drew himself up to his full height and began shouting at us like a drunken Protestant at a statue of Pan. The neon Jezebel is no woman. She is a harpy and a harbinger of the whore of Babylon. Yeah, she's got a tongue on her, but I've got a gun on you. You... The stevedore pronounced, Shall not thwart the will of the Almighty. Then Lucian said, That's between me and God. You know what's between me and you? A loaded fucking pistol. 
Now quit your jabbering and go get her. That was when the first shot was fired. The short one was standing in the open, shooting from the hip and missed Lucian by a mile. The one with the axe grabbed his gun, and I made good my promise. One shot, right through the forehead. Shem reached into his pocket and pulled out a revolver. The stout one dropped behind the car and used it as cover to fire on Lucian. Lucian hit Shem, which made him stumble back into the stout one's line of fire. It was a shotgun, and Shem caught it full in the back. The stout one ceased firing as he watched the life drain from his uncle's body. The short one was still trying to shoot without bringing the rifle up to his shoulder. It occurred to me later that he wasn't strong enough to actually lift it. It took Lucian three shots to bring him down. It's never really like it is in Tom Mix films. One bullet is rarely enough to end a man's life, or even stop him from shooting back. That just left the stout one, who was sobbing behind the car, but still pointing that shotgun at Lucian. Put the gun down! I said, circling around to the rear of the car. Don't fire again, and you can just walk away. As soon as he was looking at me, Lucian ran for the house. The stevedore had gone inside when the firefight started, and Lucian didn't want to give him time to make Rosamond into a human shield. I continued with the stout one. Do you have a name, son? My name is Jackson. What's yours? Jackson was the name I had used that morning. No sense confusing him. He didn't answer. All I could hear was his blubbering. Come along, let's talk. Just your name to start. Through the tears, he managed to choke out that his name was Isaiah. Isaiah, I said, there's something I want you to do for me. And then I did it. I used the voice. It was the first time since the war. But it still happened as smooth as if I'd been practicing every day. I said, run, and he did. The shotgun clattered to the ground, and the boy went tearing into the woods. It didn't feel good to do. It never felt good to do, but I had never used the voice on an American before. Come to think of it, I'd never used it in English before. In training, they drilled us with German phrases, and in the war, well, that was what we needed. At the time, though, I was in no position to reflect on this. I went running after Lucian into the house. The front door opened into a cluttered living room. Either the furniture had been left with the house, or our kidnappers had really properly moved in. There was a flight of stairs immediately ahead of me, and Lucian was at the top, talking to a closed door. There's dead men outside, he called to whoever was behind the door, but there's no reason you should join them. From behind the door, the stevedore yelled, Your killers! Your murderers! Never minding the fact that they shot first. Now, you know how one tends to steal themselves after making a mistake. Our instinct is to deny, first and foremost to ourselves, that a mistake was made at all. And we begin to tell ourselves that no, really, that had been a good idea. I was experiencing a similar phenomenon. I came up the stairs slowly, and when I caught Lucian's eye, I mouthed, The voice. His eyes widened. Then he swallowed. Then he nodded. I watched as he took a deep breath 
letting his shoulders relax and fall. I started humming to myself in the same modulation. It's a protection against the voice's effects. Open this door, Lucian said. We both watched as the doorknob started to turn. Then another gun went off. Numerous voices screamed, and Lucian kicked the door in as more shots followed. He had his pistol drawn, and seeing the stevedore, he fired three tight shots into his chest. There aren't many men who can come back from that at short range, and those who do tend to be of a mind to surrender. Apart from Lucian's three, I had counted five shots. The room we were in had several large crates, which presented possible areas of cover for whoever had been shooting. Making a careful sweep of the room, we found a second man lying on the floor next to a crate, bleeding from several wounds. Whoever had shot him was imprecise, but enough bullets will bring down anyone, regardless of where they are hit. For a moment, I felt like I was back in France. I saw that man, this skinny stranger, not in his trousers and shirt, but in a uniform, dark gray, mud splattered. He wasn't lying on floorboards, but in the dirt, wearing one of those pickle-haube helmets that the more rustic divisions had. In that moment, transported as I was, I could read his wounds like a familiar quotation. He was a goner. I walked over and gave him one more in the forehead. A coup de gras in the traditional sense. I don't think he recognized it as a gesture of respect, but I'm not going to leave a man to bleed out. There was another door, slightly ajar. Lucian gave it a small kick, then immediately stepped back. When no gunfire came, we moved forward. It was a small room, and I frankly have no idea what its original purpose was. There were two windows and two chairs. One empty, and in the other, Rosamond, bound hand and foot. I kept a lookout while Lucian untied her. She seemed on the very verge of fainting. She offered no resistance or help, and barely seemed to notice that she was being untied at all. I had seen that before. It wasn't the fainting of illness or injury. It was shell shock. Lucian made a quick inspection of her person and informed me she was not hurt. Another woman called out to us from the other end of the room. A second door led into a washroom, and someone was taking cover there. The woman's voice... How to describe it? There was music in it, but broken up by a harsh whisper, like a singer attempting to clear their throat by pressing on through the song. I had never heard anything like it. She said, No, she's not hurt. You're welcome for that. And I shouted back, Who are you? She identified herself as Delacane. Are you armed? I asked. She said she was. Set the gun down where I can see it, I ordered. She told me that wasn't necessary, and we could go. I told her, I'm the one defining necessary at this moment. Set the gun down where I can see it. The washroom was dark, and late-day sunlight was coming through the windows, but I saw the faint silhouette of her revolver being laid down on the floor. I told her to raise her hands above her head and step out. Vivian, I wish that I hadn't. 
I have seen burns, and wounds, and men opened up in surgery. The terrible gas attacks we were subjected to left those unprotected with the most horrific malformations of the face and body. Mr. Lacane was an entirely other form of grotesque. Not the kind that conjures up the dreadful knowledge of one's own mortality, or summons gut-twisting empathy for the pain you imagine them to be in. No. No. Mr. Lacane was something else. She struck me with holy dread, like the chimeric visions of John the Apostle. Something had happened to her, and I can't begin to guess at what, but it had reformed her. The flesh of her lips had hardened and puckered, with a sharp point at the center of her upper lip. Her nose seemed to have melted some, leaving her nostrils to flare outwards rather than downwards. But her eyes were still startlingly human. She no longer had hair. It had been replaced by a massive plume of feathers, most of them twice as long as my finger. When she stepped into the room, the light played off her plumage. Dazzling blues and greens. Those feathers at the top of her head were tipped in yellow. Miss Kane was dressed in a loose-fitting pair of trousers and blouse. I could see lines in the fabric where more feathers had been matted down. Her fingers were too long, with bulging knuckles and sharp, dark nails. I was dumbstruck. I was beholding some kind of human-avian hybrid, and the unmistakable reality of it made me feel as if I had spent my life dreaming and was just now waking up to a world I had never known. My faith was broken, not in spiritual things, but in the material. It must have been what the Victorians felt like, more assured of the second coming than the sunrise. Lucian, too, was agape. He made no movement as Miss Kane stepped gingerly towards the window. She made a sign to someone outside and stepped back. I think I mumbled something like, What's going on here? Because of the deformity of her lips, Miss Kane could not smile. But there was a change in her eyes as she looked at me. A kindness. And she said, You rescued Rosamond. Well done. A moment later, there was a clunk as a heavy piece of metal came through the window and hit the floor. It was a grappling hook. An honest-to-God grappling hook. Someone on the ground pulled it tight against the windowsill and Miss Kane made an exit. I started forward to stop her, but Rosamond reached out. She told me to let her go. And I did. We were all shell-shocked. Lucian lowered himself and Rosamond sat on the floor. I just leaned against the wall. I don't know how long we waited there. But it was Rosamond who spoke first. She said, Now you know why she didn't want to be seen. It was a wildly insufficient statement under the circumstances. But neither of us was in a frame of mind to argue. 
Then Rosamond said that she wanted to go home. Lucian didn't move right away. I stepped towards him and offered him my hand. Take it downstairs, I said. Go get the car. I'll clean up here. That worked on the old boy. He carried Rosamond out the door and down the stairs, then began the trek to where we had left the car. As for me, I needed answers. Even then, I was not prepared to simply let a mysterious bird woman disappear out of a window without further explanation. Searching the room, there was a camera with unused film. My only guess was that they intended to photograph Miss Kane. On a table, I found a number of correspondence with a person dubbed Lancelot. They were in a meager sort of code, and made several references to Neon Jezebel, accompanied by the information they needed to make good the kidnapping. It was Lancelot who suggested going through the hedge rather than the gate. He also specified certain hours that the, quote, protective detail, end quote, would be away from the house. It was then, looking through those letters, that I began to wonder if Rosamond had been the target at all. The vehemence with which the letters decried the target of the kidnapping were as likely to be leveled at a bird woman as with a controversial lecturer. My time with this evidence was cut short when I heard Lucian pulling up to the house. I headed back downstairs. Lucian had left Rosamond in the sitting room. I helped him get her into the car, hoping she wouldn't have to witness the remains of the Barnaby posse. We drove back towards town, and after some silence, Lucian began to lay out his plan. We would go directly to the police. He and I would give our testimony of what we saw, and Rosamond would also make a statement, should she feel up to it. Then he said, We never saw Della Kane. We don't know what happened to her. We all agreed. Right there in that car, we formed a conspiracy to forget that Della Kane had any hand in the day's events. I don't know why. I doubt any of us did. But we felt it. We knew we had to. Neon Isabel is written and performed by Zachary Westbrook. Announcements by me, Su Gang Lee. If you like this show, be sure to give us a like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. You can visit our website, neonzezebel.com. That's N-E-O-N-J-E-Z-E-B-E-L.com. And find us on Instagram, at Neon Zezebel Podcast. <laughs>